WMQA. Hello and welcome to WMQA. I'm Dan Grote. And I'm Matt Laswitz. And this week's guest is the writer of the new Boom Studio series regarding the matter of Oswald's body uh, and the upcoming Angel, uh, Marvel's Iron Man in the United States of Captain America, uh, Vaults the Blue Flame, and probably some other stuff, uh, Christopher Cantwell. Uh, thanks for joining us, Christopher. Thank you so much for having me, guys. Uh, so we'll start with the, the first question for first-time guests. Uh, what are some of the first comics that you remember reading? Oh, first remember reading. Jeez. Uh, I have the first comic I got um, from my dad. He took me on a camping trip to um, Tyler, Texas. I grew up in, I grew up outside Dallas. And uh, on the way home, we stopped at like one of those, you know, convenience stores on the side of the highway. And uh, he got me Marvel Tales number, oh God, I forgot. I always forget what number it is, but it's the one where he's punching Wolfsbane in the face for some reason. Uh, and it, it's, uh, it's got one of those like cheeky Marvel titles where it's like, we might call this story Reign of Terror, but we won't. You know, it was like one of those <laughs> kind of like perfect Marvel. And so I, I read that like a hundred times and I, I still have that issue. And then from there, there was a comic shop in, in the mall where I grew up and my parents uh, took me in there and I, I like everyone on earth, um, picked up Jim Lee's X-Men number one. Sure. And from there I started... Um, I started reading pretty regularly. I started reading all those X-Men books. Then I started going back into the Chris Claremont X-Factor because I was really into Cyclops at that age. And so I wanted to read those stories where he was the head of that team. And um, and then, yeah, I and then, you know, when they were still doing Marvel subscription service, then I had, I had Amazing Spider-Man. I had Spectacular. I had Captain America, kind of around like the Cap Wolf era um, stuff, you know, Death of Vermin, all the, all the J.M. DeMattis uh, greatness. Mm -hmm. um, I still have a lot of my original issues of those. So, you know, and then it was like bone and I started to get into, I started, I read the mask, which I probably shouldn't have read at that age, <laughs> you know, just a ton of stuff. So it was great. I, I, I'm always fascinated by the people who are drawn to Cyclops at a young age, especially from like our generation when it was like peak Wolverine saturation, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know why that is. Right. It's like, I, I feel like, I mean, I had, I remember the, the toys that came out when I was around nine, which is the same, my son is, my older son is eight. And uh, it's funny to think about myself getting those toy biz action figures. But like, I've talked about this on other podcasts, but remember the Wolverine action figure, his mask was a ring. So you could put the mask on your finger. So your, your finger was Wolverine. Like it was really weird. It was really strange. And Nightclub had suction cups, night, uh, Nightcrawler had suction cups. Mm -hmm. um, so you could put them on a window facing away from you, which is really strange. Um, and then, I don't know, I think the Cyclops toy, I was like really into it. And also he, like, he was like a, like really by the book, like upstanding dude. And like, as an only <laughs> child, kind of like a type, you know, need to achieve kid. I think I was drawn to, drawn to him for sure. Yeah. Yep. Oldest child, oldest of three, three who always had to be in charge, responsible for his brothers. That's I think why Scott spoke to me. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> makes perfect sense uh, but also i do like the idea of a nightcrawler figure that, that that's basically like those garfields that used to yeah. cling to uh you know windows. Windows. yeah yeah exactly it's like you put him i had my mom cut the suction cups off mine because i was like i don't want to play with the suction cup toy it was like weird <laughs> um, but he was like one of my favorites too i loved him so like you know and he came with like the cool swashbuckler sword mm -hmm. you know those were good toys good stuff uh so 
uh, we're, we're probably going to bounce around a bit, but let's start with the book that you've got dropping this week as we're recording uh, regarding the matter of Oswald's body uh, from Boom Studios with artist Luca Casalanguida. Uh, here is the solicit text for the listeners. Uh, the Kennedy assassination is a rat's nest of conspiracy theories, mafia involvement, the second gunman, government cover-up. But the most important chapter of this sort of tale may just be the theory that the body buried at Oswald's Rosehill gravesite is not actually Lee Harvey himself. Meet the ragtag group of useful idiots, a wannabe cowboy from Wisconsin, a buddy Holly idolizing former car thief, a world-weary civil rights activist ready for revolution, and a failed G-man who still acts the part, who are unwittingly brought together to clean up the crime of the century and specifically deal with the matter of Oswald's body. So uh, what, is, what is the origin of this project? When did this kind of first come into your well, let's, head? Let's see. I mean, I, I think that... Um, I. As a kid, I grew up. I grew up outside Dallas, as I mentioned, right. So mm-hmm. when you're a kid, um, you know, and you learn like, oh, there was a president, you know, and he died, but like in this terrible way, very public way. Um, it's shocking, you know, as a kid. You know, you, I think everybody like reads profiles of courage or whatever when you're in like third grade or whatever, and um, and then and then you find out that it happened down the street, and that's creepy. You know what I mean? When you're a kid, um, and then part and parcel with that is that my parents would take me to movies a lot. They took me to movies pretty much every weekend. My dad, they weren't cinephiles by any measure of the word, but they, they would open up the newspaper. They would find what was playing, you know, whatever made sense. And we would go to usually a matinee because it was cheaper. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And they didn't really do a lot of research. So that's how I ended up seeing a lot of stuff that I shouldn't have seen. Um, And I, I ended up seeing the movie. I ended up seeing Oliver Stone's JFK when I was nine. Right. So like I, like went into the theater and, and, you know, I think my dad was like, Oh, you know, they're going to talk about the, I remember him saying, look, they're going to maybe talk about some stuff around the assassination and like, but they proved it was one guy and like, you know, it's just a story. And, you know, then I watched, you know, three hours where, you know, including Tommy Lee Jones and Kevin Bacon, like beating each other with chains, doing amyl nitrate painted metallic colors, you know? And I was like, Oh, okay. And then, and then on the way out of the theater, we were driving home and my dad, I remember my, I still remember my dad turning to my mom in the, in the passenger seat and being like, I can't believe they, they fucking killed him. Like they fucking, we, they fucking killed him. Like the CIA killed him. And hearing your dad say that, like the boomer from the suburbs, like mm-hmm. in Texas, I was like, what is going on? And so, you know, it was just something that stuck in my mind. You know, the Sixth Floor Museum is a pretty um, amazing experience to go to that place. Um, it is weird to just, you know, you're driving down a particular highway and like you, you go by those buildings all the time. They're right there. You can see them from the, from the road. Um, and someone who I think I'm, I'm a, you know, I'm an obsessive, you know, I, I, I have pretty intense OCD so I can lock into things. And so, you know, it's something that for a brain that, you know, desires certainty, you can dive pretty deep into conspiracy and it never comes. Right. And so mm-hmm. I've, I've read tons of books on that stuff and, and, 10 years ago, I did a, a feature script with my writing partner at the time um, that ended up on the blacklist, which is a, a yearly list of unproduced screenplays. And mm-hmm. we did kind of an um, on the ground, plausible conspiracy movie of like what it would be. We didn't name anybody, but it was really just from the perspective of a Dallas patrolman, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, that was exhausting. And I, I did a lot of research for that, that screenplay, but um, I, I kind of had put it to bed but I revisited it like in just um, thinking about different things I wanted to do in comics. And I, I had not tried a, co- a crime comic 
um, which I think is a kind of a great story genre in the medium. And, and I came back to it. And um, for some reason, I don't know why, but it had escaped me in all of my research that they actually did dig up Oswald in October of 81. Mm-hmm. They, there was enough noise about it not being him that his widow, Marina, approved um, him being exhumed and they brought him to Parkland, which was the hospital he died at um, mm-hmm. 18 years before and Kennedy. And within a day, they, they went through, looked him up and, you know, up and down and were like, yeah, it's him and put him back. And of course that satisfied no one, right? Like, which I think is fascinating. It's like none of the conspiracy people were satisfied by that in the least. And so I wanted to look at that. And it, it really was just kind of a way in to, to one, look at the ground level of experience of, of that era, like, and, and, and widen it to stories that we maybe have seen in the past, which would include things like Oliver Stone's JFK or even Westerns from the time, stuff from mm-hmm. the early 60s. You know, we've got a, we've got a, a young kid who's, um, you know, Latino and is 19, you know, and he's also obsessed with Buddy Holly and Richie Valens. And um, we've got a civil rights activist from South Dallas who helped, you know, get Martin Luther King to speak at the city in early 63, which actually happened. I did a bunch of research for this book, too. There was a bunch of backlash around that. So um, I just I wanted to write something about where I grew up. I wanted to write something about this and I want to write something about that kind of enduring mystery that will never really have an answer mm-hmm. and will never really have a satisfying conclusion. I think, I think those are fascinating stories. Um, how did your uh, creative team kind of come together on this one? Well, let's see. I think Eric Harburn, who's an editor at Boom and a really great one, um, he, he reached out to me and asked me if I would consider doing something with their imprint and I was wildly impressed with their imprint. I'm, I'm a huge fan of Coda by Seisburger and, and Matthias Bergara. I just think it's a masterpiece. Um, I devoured every issue. Um, uh, Something is Killing the Children is a fantastic book. Um, and so I was like, yeah, I mean, it, it was definitely a place I wanted to, to be working with. And so I, I didn't really have anything fully baked. I, I had a couple things. I had one thing that, that was floating around that I sent to Eric and, and I kind of put this pitch together special for, for them. I was like, you know, um, let, me, let me go away and think about it. And I came back a couple of weeks later. And this was, this was probably right around the pandemic um, beginning when things shut down. So I was on a TV show that was no longer going to be shooting in the summer. So I was like, what am I doing? So I put together this pitch for, for Eric and he, he really responded to it. And, and we were kind of off to the races. And, and he was the one that, you know, I described, I want something that has, you know, the kind of crime genre feel to it from comics. It has a pulp feel to it. And he found Luca. Um, and, and then the two of us were, were working on it from there. And, and the designs and, and the art that, that Luca has brought to the book has really elevated it, in my opinion. You know, it's, I think it really does speak to, um, you know, what that time, that place. Um, and it also captures, I think, visually the, the kind of offbeat left field tone I was going for a little bit, right? Where it's, it really is like a band of screw ups. It's not, it's not this, it's not a Jason Bourne film, right? It's, it's like people who have no business doing anything that's involved with any of this, you know, who are brought together, who would normally never associate with each other, kind of thrust into this situation for a couple of days. And that's the whole length of the story over five issues. So, so yeah. So speaking of that team of screw ups, the opening issue is, 
the classic getting the team together montage that sets up any good caper story. Uh, did you sit down and watch at some point your favorite caper, whether it's an Oceans or Italian Job or Now You See Me or whatever, and say to yourself, you know, I want to do that someday. I think that if there was something else that inspired me in writing this, it would, the, the thing that would speak to it the most would be the Coen Brothers movie Blood Simple, which I love, right? Which is from 84 is their first movie. Um, you know, it is set in a very similar type of Texas. Um, you know, the, it's, it's Francis McDormand and uh, is it John Getz? Yeah, it's John Getz, isn't it? That's amazing. Yeah, it's John Getz. And uh, I just love the way that movie slow burns. I love the situations they find themselves in. It's, it's funny at times. It's like kind of frightening and scary at other times. It's, it's really primal and kind of elegant mental and so um I, I think that maybe i probably drew mostly from from that for inspiration if i was looking for tone you know i think that was really um something i drew from because i just love that movie to death yeah you know it's it's you talked about seeing uh jfk w when you were nine uh and that kind of being your your introduction to the the kennedy conspiracy theories uh and all that and I, you know i was thinking about my own and it was i don't know if you remember there was there was this animated sitcom that around the early 90s called the critic and they would do yes. like movie spoofs uh, okay yeah. yeah and uh they, they did a jfk one and it was just two minutes of kevin costner saying back and to the <laughs> left yeah it, it, it was like it was like a family guy-esque uh, kind of like drawn out too long gag Mm -hmm. I, I think that's that's the first one that I can remember anyway. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, oh God, I love that show. Yeah, that was a great show. I watched it with my dad, believe it or not. Yeah, yeah that's a good one. For me, it was Quantum Leap, which I watched oh, yeah, with my he jumps dad. jumps into Oswald, right? Yes, yes. Yeah, and he's like fighting his own, like, he's like, it's like messed up and he, like Oswald's kind of taking over in those mm -hmm. moments. It's, yeah, that's a, that's a yep. weird, that's a weird that's a, one. Uh, it's it like, he still hits Kennedy, but like, yes, but he really, he all, he still altered time because originally Oswald killed Jackie as well or yep. something. Like that. Yep. Yeah. That was the, the final line before he leaped out. But Al tells him that in the original timeline, Jackie died too. Yeah. That was a show I watched with my dad every week. We'd watch Quantum Leap. And yeah, that was, I mean, I'm, I must've had some impression of it before, but that's the thing that sticks in my head. And then there's the X-Files with all the, yeah. the, it's always like that first thing that hits in the pop culture that makes you like re-examine and go wow but i mean it's funny in watching in watching jfk now i it's it is it's actually one of my favorite movies as an adult and, and it really has not very much to do with um me seeing it way too young but uh i, I do think i think it's one of the even the i think the director's cut is even better which is over three hours um it's one of the best edited movies i've ever seen the way that he's able to take all of that disparate footage, all those disparate threads and weave them together, you know, with voiceover and with music and like, like the pace of it is just incredible. It just moves and moves and moves. It's, it's, it's a brilliant movie when it comes to cutting. I, it's, 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 it's my favorite example of like highly sophisticated cinematic editing that I've, I've, I've seen. Yeah. I love it. Um, you know, it, it, it's funny, uh, we've, as a society, we've sort of been lecturing each other uh, over the dangers of conspiracy theories a lot 
this past like year or two with with good reason. But the Kennedy assassination kind of in a way is that reminder that there's nothing new under the sun. You know, it's it's certainly not as sinister as, as you know, QAnon or anything, but it's it's like the high watermark for conspiracy theories for like the boomer generation where history is forced into mythology and this twisted bid to make chaos make sense. Um, you know, in, in researching and getting ready to write this book, how much were you looking to pull from existing theories and how much were you trying to say, nah, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to add a new one to the canon here. I think that it was, it was similar to what I had done with the feature with Chris, um, you know, 10 years ago, which was, I looked at all of the loose threads and all of the things I had researched. I did a lot of reading, you know, and I revisited things like the Warren commission report and all of that. And, um, and like the, the house select community on assassinations in 76, um, all of those things and things that have subsequently been discussed proven and then there's certain loose threads that are you know still fascinating to me because I, I mean when I was doing my research for the feature a decade ago you know I, I've read enough at this point that I'm fairly convinced that it was one guy and it was you know up in that up in that depository building and and and, and that's that you know uh, in terms of motivations and stuff it gets a little muddy here but there are these weird there's a few loose threads that you you stumble across that I did where I would go, God, that's weird. You know what I mean? It, it, that's mm -hmm. awfully coincidental or like that's kind of spooky and creepy. Um, and so I pulled on, on some of those. And I, I think that what I tried to build this time is it's a, it's a, it's definitely more heightened than I think um, something that would, I'm trying to sell is completely plausible, right? Like it's the book is first and foremost, a character piece. It's about these four people um, in this situation that they have no business being in, right? And it's about the relationships they form with each other when they, they wouldn't in the culture at that time. Um, that to me is the primary point of the book. And, and I, I wanted to say something about Texas. I wanted to say something about, you know, the country um, and how we interact with each other. Like, and I wanted to do that through the characters. But in terms of building the plot, in terms of building the conspiracy, quote unquote, that happens in the book is, I, I, again, I don't, I don't name anybody. But there are ancillary characters in the book that are, are either amalgamations of historical people, um, amalgamations of people who are rumored to be involved, um, or actual people. I mean, Jack Ruby shows up in this thing. Um, you know, Oswald is a character. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, um, that happens. Like, it, and I do take, obviously, you know, dramatic liberties with, with some of this stuff. But in a lot of the, the back matter pages for the book so that, you know, we, we can do some design pages, you know, before and after each issue. Mm -hmm. um, I, I had a lot of fun designing those um, and giving them to Eric uh, and Ramiro, our assistant editor, just because I was able to pour a lot of those kind of loose threads into the, into the designs for the pages, right. In terms of diagrams, you know, what the floor plan looks like at the Dallas jail, like, you know, who had what, like lists of people who might've been in Dallas at that time, um, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm going deep, but not in a way that's going to overwhelm readers. Like, to, mm -hmm. like, if you're really looking and you really want to dig deep, like, I, yes, I am, I am referencing, you know, Corsican assassins, you know, like I am, I am referencing people in, in New Orleans. Like I am referencing mysterious puddles of blood that were documented outside the Texas book depository on November 22nd. Like I am doing those things. But if you want to, that to kind of fall to the background and enjoy the character story, you can also do that too. So, so yeah. It, it's funny. At one point when I was 
putting my notes together for this episode, I had just written the words data pages in, in all caps with an exclamation point, which is a ridiculous thing that I blame X-Men comics for uh, training me to do. It's Hickman's fault. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. But, you know, I did it. I, I did enjoy like that. They're in the first issue uh, for the listeners. There are, are flow charts at the beginning and end. And I won't say what's on them, but I definitely was toggling back and forth on the digital copy. Like, OK, what's 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 different here? Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's I'm, I was definitely trying to do that. And, you know, I had fun with like, you know, the black redaction lines and all that kind of stuff. And but, but those are those are meant to imply names of of real people rumored or or actually in texas or dallas around that time which Mm -hmm. is is fun you know and the character of frank who's kind of overseeing this operation is is taken from different pieces of of people that i've researched um you know over the last however long my you know i've been doing this for Mm -hmm. fun and for for profession yeah um where does ted cruz's dad did it rank on your (laughs) all-time list of jfk theories i don't know (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> probably just probably below the secret service guy accidentally discharged his M16 in the car uh, behind Kennedy and killed him. Like that it was a secret service guy, mm-hmm. uh, which is like uh, that one that, that to me is like, what? Like I, <laughs> there are some of them that are so crazy where you're like, but I was actually just talking about this um, with someone, which is that I, I feel like so many of these conspiracy theories and look, I mean, you mentioned QAnon, like, People were just in Dealey Plaza a few days ago waiting for JFK Jr. to come back from the dead. Yes. They have not left. Are they they still are there? still there. Okay, that's really upsetting. Like, I, I was it, reading about it today. They are still there refusing to leave because Q has told them not to leave. This is yeah, Linus and like, the Great Pumpkin shit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a sincere, yeah, he has to be sincere. You have to be as sincere as possible and then uh, JFK Jr. will show up. It's, it's so, it's so crazy to me and it, Again, like I've been down in Dealey Plaza when it's just, you know, some fringe people with photos. You know, I've been down there when it's like international tourists who like want to stand on the X with the thumbs up and take a photo, which is super disturbing. Right. Like and then there's the highly emotional experiences people have when they visit and then go to the museum, all that stuff. It's all wrapped up into one. And like um, for me, what's fascinating about conspiracy theory is that people will look at something that is a, a chaotic entropic event that is unexplained, mm-hmm. right? That shakes all of the, the natural order that exists in their psyche, right? In terms of institutions, governmental powers, the way society is supposed to work, uh, you know, moral structures, all of those things, they, they get rattled or collapse. And rather than have a nervous breakdown, the human mind seizes on details and, and frantically tries to rebuild those governmental structures, those, those, you know, moral strictures, all of those things, the way society works, it builds a perverse kind of uh, grotesque version of them where now the government government is sinister. Um, you know, it's evil, um, you know, all of it, but it's still, in, it's still in control. It's still in charge. Right. And so, even with the conspiracy theory that says they're all out to get us, uh, there's, a, there's a kind of comfort and solace in that where you can continue to abdicate control to the larger systems in, at play in society and in the culture, right? And so you can go, okay, well, it, it's, I'm still existing within a large scaffolding, um, a large machine, and I'm just a cog. Um, and, and these are all the power structures that are at play. 
right? Whether you believe that as it exists now, or you believe it as Q or the Illuminati or the CIA killed Kennedy or whatever it is, you're abdicating a lot of free will and power to these structures um, in order to sleep better at night. Because if one guy can decide that he's angry and pissed off enough that he's not special and he's not as smart as he thinks he is, and he's not as important as he wants to be that he can then go and order a rifle, you know, through the mail, go to work one day and just so happens the president drives by and he gets a one in a million shot and kills him and changes the world forever. That to me is almost infinitely scarier on a psychological level than reptile people are in charge. You know what I mean? Cause it's like, people are still in charge because at that point, no one's in charge. If like some dipshit can go up and, and, and take out the leader of the free world, any of us can, and none of us are safe. Right. And none of it means anything. It's all just a fiction that we've created in order to, I don't know what, you know, like sleep, eat and expand economically. And it's like, okay, you know, it can, it can all crumble pretty fast in your mind. If you, if you try to embrace that truth, I think it's a tough truth. I think that, I think, I think that people go, oh, it's so easy to say it was one guy, you know, and, and he did this and, and tie a bow around it and, and, and go to bed. You know, I think that to actually look at it and go, no, like how messed up is that? That like this one guy did this. Um, it's truly terrifying. You know, of course, I think when you look at the Kennedy assassination, I think there are these different variables at play that make it kind of the mother of all conspiracies, which is the time in which it happened because um, media recording, whether it be film, TV, radio, any of that stuff, walkie talkies. I mean, I'm talking about like just the quality of media was not where it is now, right? It's not hyper discernible. You can't, it's not HD, you can't blow it up. You know, I mean, the, the House Select Committee in 76, they, they, was, they ruled probable conspiracy based on a cop's dict about recordings that they thought they heard second shots from. Mm-hmm. Then they proved later in the 90s, mid 90s, early 2000s, that that dictabelt was on like 30 minutes after the assassination had already happened and the cop was on the freeway. So like, that's how cruddy the recording was on the cop's dictabelt radio because it wasn't good. You, you know, these the people that were breaking the news stories were doing so like in basements and black and white TV, like it was all delayed. And then you have the bureaucratic piece on top of that which is the government needing a narrative right because less than you know it was i think a year before you know the the soviets were and us were about to shoot missiles at each other so it's like the last thing you want to do is is go well he was in russia for a year before he got here because then you know you're you're risking nuclear war i'm not justifying like the cia or the fbi papering over a lot of the investigation but they did and when you do that and when the warren commission has an agenda then it looks bad to the public because as the public starts to dig, they realize that not the whole truth has been shared. Lies have been told and they go to the darkest place, which is, well, they must be responsible. Right. And so all those things kind of tied up together. um, It just becomes this riddle that you, you, you know, you'll, you'll never understand or figure out. So uh, one, one last Kennedy thought before we move on. It's, it's you know, funny that this all comes together now. So uh, in my day job, I'm an editor at a, at a newspaper in Atlantic City, and we just ran a story about this local guy who sincerely believes that he is the child of, of, of JFK and Marilyn Monroe. 
so much so that he wrote a book about it. And in the 90s, he legally changed his name to John F. Kennedy, (laughs) despite the fact that there already was a John F. Kennedy Jr. Okay, that's weird. Amazing. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, there, there are people who... That's an interesting thing, too, where you need to assign yourself to something of larger import, right? Even if it is totally delusional, right? Um, There was a woman who was on the grassy knoll. Sorry, no, she was across the street. So in the middle part of Dealey Plaza. Mm -hmm. And she's called colloquially the, the, the babushka lady. And it's a woman with a redhead scarf. And she is filming the motorcade with a Kodak camera from the other direction in a direction that we've never seen before, right? We've, there are two, there are a couple films, but they're all from the same perspective of the Zapruder film. This woman was filming from the other direction and she kept filming um, even while the shots were fired. Other people, you can see them in photographs go down and she is still filming. Um, that woman has never been identified. Uh, that film has never been recovered. Um, and, you know, of course, a woman came forward, I think in the eighties or nineties and said it was her and that, you know, people in suits came and took the film. And I think she was a dancer at the carousel club, which was owned by Jack Ruby, things like this, but like odds are no, you know what I mean? It's like mm-hmm. that there's the documentary about the woman who said she was at nine 11 and, and, you know, was a part of those um, crisis trauma groups and like helped organize a lot of that stuff. And then it turned out that she wasn't even in the States. Like she was in Europe during, and it's like, there is something about these kind of massive catastrophes where they, they leave such a psychic scar that mm-hmm. people can't, people, either the pain people are feeling, they, they need to, they need to place themselves there, mm-hmm. or it's a way of, of assigning themselves some kind of identity that feels more meaningful than what they have, you know, which is in a way kind of what Oswald did. You know, I mean, it, it really was. Otherwise, he was just a, a schmuck. You know what I mean? Like, I think he did bounce around and he did defect and he did go to, you know, he did go to Russia and he, he did meet his wife there. But he's working in a radio factory and he was miserable. And he tried to he tried to commit suicide while he was there. Right. Like, and of course, the FBI was of course, the CIA was watching him. Of course, the KGB was watching him. This guy used to be in the Marines and suddenly he shows up at the embassy. He wants to come over. Mm-hmm. And they all realize they're like, uh, this guy's a doofus, you know, and, and he's like a tragic figure. And then he, he comes back and, and no one cares. Like he thought people were going to greet him when he got off the plane. He thought reporters were going to be there wait, waiting to interview him. No one gave a shit. Like, it was like, he's went back and he was still nobody and, and he couldn't take it anymore. So he decided to become somebody and boy, did he, you know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah all the presidential assassins i mean you look at uh i mean charles godot is my i mean that guy was batshit crazy which one did he assassinate uh garfield oh he right. oh you okay. look at that guy he w- believed you know he was a failed author failed preacher who wrote sent Garfield speeches on the campaign trail that Garfield never touched because they were rambling and insane, but he believed that he got Garfield elected and was going to be made ambassador to France. And when he never got anywhere, he just walked up to Garfield and shot him. Yeah. The the one who's the most stable was uh, Leon Chalgosh who shot McKinley, who was just a, a socialist agitator 
literally, you know, like labor organized, you know, not in the stable way, but he just he did it out of a political statement that makes him by far the most stable. I mean, in uh, Booth was a whole, you know, failed actor. Enough said. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that that failed quality, I think, is something there. And and that's definitely something that we explore in the book. And and I don't want to spoil anything, but like they they do get in. I mean, there's a shared quality among the characters in the in the book, you know, in terms of feeling washed up, feeling like they haven't had their chance, feeling like um, they always lose, um, you know, and, and they share that they share that kind of quality with with Oswald, right? And I think that there's a there's an impressionability in people like that, and I think um, those people can be manipulated. And I think that there's a there's a struggle to find agency in your life um, that I think these these characters are, are trying to do as well in a, in a very similar way. Um, you know, not exactly as dark a way as as Oswald is, but but that's definitely something I explore. You know, it's funny you talk about that, but like so much of this stuff is happenstance too. Where like, I mean, it, it's just all the wrong things have to line up for this to be able to happen, right? And I mean, like you look at, you look at like Gavrilo Princip killing Franz Ferdinand, where that, that was a team of guys and they could not have been more of a, like a, a you know, group of fuck ups where like, you know, they, the, the parade route, they were like, we shouldn't do this. And Ferdinand was like, yeah, no, it's gonna be great. You know, we'll put the top down. And then they changed the parade route the, the assassins were, were stationed in the wrong place. Gavrilo Princip got cold feet. He was like, I can't do this. You know, one guy, one guy has a bomb. He throws the bomb. He overthrows it. It bounces off like the hood or the trunk of Ferdinand's car. It hits something behind him and explodes. Somebody gets injured back there. They're like, we should stop. And he's like, no, 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 it's okay. It's okay. Like send them to the hospital. Like this is important for us to do this. The third guy, you know, uh, try something like he, I, I, I think he, his, I forgot what happened. Something goes wrong with him. He, he, his, then his cyanide capsule doesn't work. And so then he runs to a bridge. He throws himself off the bridge. The, the waters, it's like, there's a drought. And so there's only like three inches of water. Like he falls, he like breaks his leg. People are like beating him up in the water, you know? And like Gavrilo Princip is like, fuck this. I'm not going to be involved. I'm not, I'm just going to go get some coffee. And Ferdinand's car gets lost in the city because of all the chaos. They make a, a several wrong turns. They don't know where they are. The driver's like, hold on a second. Like, let's just stop here so I can figure out where we are. They stop in front of the exact place that Princep is inside of. Princep walks outside and Ferdinand's car is right in front of them. And he's like, oh, well, shit. And he just walks up and he blows away both. I mean, he just like, it's, it, was, it was pure, stupid, dumb fuck luck. And so much of this is. And I think that that's also something that I tried to explore in this book, which is like, the million to one odds it's not perfect execution it's just you know right place right time or wrong place wrong time you know probably mm-hmm. usually both you know and you just end up pulling it off somehow yeah i'm just picturing this team of wily coyotes that's going after archduke it really was about it, it's insane and like you know and then it wasn't like the nephew was put in charge of the the funeral arrangements he was pissy because like he had been over he had been looked over for like a position of authority <laughs> They, otherwise, like, they, they, like I think it was um, like Wilhelm knew in Germany, like this is really bad. This could lead to world war. We all need to meet up at the funeral, like all of us, and talk this through in a room. And the nephew like was was mad, and so he didn't he didn't invite them. He like didn't invite some of the world leaders, and they weren't able to show up. And 
smooth it over and cut to, <laughs> to World War One, yeah. and then cut to World War Two, and then cut to Kennedy's election. You know what I mean? And it can be like, it all boils down to like one shitty nephew, you know, where you're like, what? You know, like, and one bad driver, you know, and like all these people die. And you're like, whoops. I mean, that's an insane thing to try to grasp. I mean, it's, it's not. So of course you go like reptile people. It's easy. Yeah. Yeah. Better that there's better that there's a devil than that there's nothing. Yeah, yeah, because that that the nothing is scarier. Yeah. Speaking of demons and the devil, yes, <laughs> you you're about to launch Angel, uh, oh. a new run on Angel. Up, boom. Uh, how did that come about? How did you get that gig? Well, you know that was funny because I um, so I, I'm a late I'm a latecomer to the whole Buffy universe. Um, really late. Uh, I would say that I, I really put it off. I, I had a girlfriend in college and she was very obsessed. And, and I watched some of, I think when I was in college at that point, it was like season six or something like that. Um, but it was really kind of a, a distant memory. And, and my wife, um, she's a big fan of it, but she would watched all of it. And so we never really got around to it. And, and she kept, she would always make noise, you know, every once in a while, she'd be like, yeah, we should, re- we should just redo Buffy, you know, and like, just watch the whole thing. And, and cause we, you know, we would be in those periods where you're looking for a show and pandemic happened and we were stuck at home and you're looking for something that's a little bit more comfortable and not so heavy, like some prestige TV is right. Like, you know, it's like, I want, I, you know, I want to watch Perry Mason with Matthew Reese, but like, you know, there's a dead baby in the first episode and you're like, okay, I'm, <laughs> it's like, I can't like, I can't like calm down at the end of a day of the pandemic starting and then turn on, you know, some really intense thing. So um, we finally were like, I was like, fine, let's, we'll watch it. I was like, this is stupid. I don't, okay, fine. You know? And, and I got so sucked into it and I loved it. And I loved Buffy through the whole thing. And then Buffy ends. Right. And you're like, Oh man, you're like bereft. And you know, there's an angel show. (laughs) Like, I mean, and I'm watching it. I'm watching it after the fact, not when it airs. Right. And like, um, I'm like, okay, like, I wish we had Buffy, like, should, you know, should we turn on Angel? And my wife had not seen Angel. And uh, she was like, we could try it, like, you know, and, and you know, when you first started, I, I remember feeling like, like, oh my God, like, what are we doing to ourselves? You know, it was <laughs> like, it felt like I was like, it felt like there was a craft table from Buffy's set and it was left out and they didn't clean it up. And you're just kind of eating the scraps off the f- floor, you know, and you're like, oh, yeah. but then like, you're like, oh, it's kind of tastes like Buffy, you know, like, and like three, but like a couple episodes in and like, you're like, Im- I was immediately hooked by like, what a random group of people. It was like, speaking of random group of people, it was like, there's something there also there's something so weirdly mag- magnetic about David Boreanaz like I just could I just like I just want to watch this guy like it's he doesn't he doesn't check the normal boxes for me but like I just want to watch him do weird stuff and like kind of grope through this story and and like they you know they kind of like shunt charisma carpenter off and they're like you to be in the show and it was it really felt like it really felt like they were, they were trying to do something. They were like, we got to keep Buffy going, right? Like it felt like kind of outside in. And then something kind of springs up from the show in the middle of that, that is like so magical and amazing. And like, um, you know, the character, the character that's only around for a few episodes, Doyle, like I was like, this is, what an interesting character. And like, you get kind of involved and then like crazy things, like, you know, 
Doyle's gone. And you're like, the season's not even over. You're like, what happened? And then they bring in Wesley, you know, and you're like, oh, this guy, like, hey, God, he drove me crazy in Buffy. Like, he was like such a wet blanket, you know? Like, he was like this sopping blanket of a character. And then he becomes my favorite character of the entire series. He becomes my favorite character of the entire Buffy universe. Like, and I, I ended up, and I loved Buffy. Like, Angel became, I, I love Angel 10 times more. And I, I think Buffy's fantastic. Like, I thought Angel was an incredible show. Like, I mean, just masterful television by the way it ended. It, the way it ends is so ahead of its time in terms of like t- TV shows, you know, die to have that kind of ambiguous ending now. And like, they're doing it, you know, back then in the early 2000s. I mean, I just thought it's such an amazing thing. And we, you know, we blew through it in a uh, little less than a year, right? We were watching like maybe one a night. Um, and then like two a night, you know, we couldn't do too much because we had two boys and we're exhausted, you know, and there was a pandemic. <laughs> um, but it was like something to like take our mind off that. So it, it really felt like it like saved us in a way. It was this like wonderful thing, you know, and it was funny and the characters were so well drawn out. It was a great ensemble. It's just something I just appreciate so much in TV and um, the mythology I thought was a lot of fun. And, and so when I started talking to Eric about um, this, I knew that Boom had the license for, you know, the Buffyverse. And I, pro- I think I probably just started bothering Eric about it. I was like, what are you guys doing with, uh, what are you guys doing with the Buffy comics? What are you doing? What are you doing over there? You know, what's going on? And uh, I was talking about how I was a big fan of Angel and all that stuff. And he put me in touch with Jonathan Manning, who's the editor for the, the Buffy books. And, and as it just kind of came together, where um, they were looking to restart, you know, Angel. They were kind of, they were bringing Angel and, and Spike to a, a conclusion and, and they wanted to know if I wanted to, to, to do something, you know, little with Angel. So I, I'm, it's not even that little, it's nice eight, eight, like eight issue story that I get to do. So um, I was over the moon and it, it's probably the closest I've ever come to writing fan fiction, but I, I, I love it. It's, it's so much fun. And, and Daniel has, the art is, the art is really cool. You know, there are some properties out there in comics where the people controlling the original IP are very specific about how it looks and it needs to be like photorealistic and it has to be taken from these, you know, exact looks and all of that stuff. And like, what's cool with the, with the Buffy verse is that they really let impressionistic artists come in and, and do their own thing. So, um, you know, Daniel's come in and done a really interesting style that I think is fun, but also speaks to the supernatural element and like has the kind of grit that you want in an angel story. And it's just been a blast writing it. I mean, it's, it's something I do just in, entirely for fun. And it, it's been, it's been great. It's been so much fun. You already hit on the, one of my next questions, which is about how you felt about that final episode of angel, because I love that that final scene is one of my favorite scenes in television. It's and I know so- it's kind of polarizing in Buffy fandom, but I just think that's... It's perfect. Somebody summed it up so well online that, that like, Buffy is a show about friends who become colleagues, and Angel is a a show about colleagues who become friends, or even a family, right? And I think that I'm a sucker for those stories, and, like, you know, the show I have on TV, it was was very similar, where it was a family of choice, and um, it was people kind of thrust together with similar orbits, and... and, um, I think Angel is very much that. And I, I love that ending. I think it's, it's brilliant and it's adult and it's mature and it, it pulls no punches. And um, 
you know, it's also fun to watch a show where there's li- they're literally trying to churn out like 22 to 24 episodes a season. And you can, as a person who has show ran a show and like kill yourself to get 10 episodes out to be doing 22 to 24 a season is, that has to be crazy. I have no experience in that. And it, it, that had to be monumental. So, um, you know, kudos to them, but you can feel it sometimes where like, I don't know, they go camping, you know, like it's literally like <laughs> those one shot, those one shot episodes, but those end up being like kind of the most fun X-Files is the same way. Right. Where it's like, I don't know, there's some monster and it has a big head, you know, <laughs> like that kind of stuff is great because it ends up just like you're writing by the seat of your pants and it, it ends up being awesome. You know, I love that stuff. It's fluke monster in the sewers of the city right next to where we grew up. <laughs> Yeah, you know, that kind of stuff is great. I, I think it's it's so, so much fun. But yeah, and it, my series picks up. Um, it does it does play fair with what's happened in the Angel book immediately preceding. So the way that one finishes, mine, it's not immediately apparent, but it does continue that story. It's just um, a really weird left field way in that I think will take people by surprise. Should be fun. Here's my next question. Uh, <laughs> so... Uh, in the announcement and what you just said before, uh, you're talking about how much you love ensembles and your appreciation for the ensemble in Angel. Are we going to be digging deep into some of those wider characters or is this Angel, Cordy, Wesley, Fred, Gunn, the, the core cast? Are we going to get into some of the more it's definitely and Lila type character, level yeah, characters? So it's, you, we... M- the way I've described this book, and I think it's even in the statement, is like it plays it plays fifty two card pickup with the universe of Angel, right? Where it's it's the characters, it's all the characters you know and the characters you love, but you're seeing them in ways you're not used to seeing them, and they seem to have switched roles in some ways, and and things are a little different, and and it's you know it's explained that this is this is maybe a, a different universe, you know, and, and that that does speak to the way that the last book ended, um, and so it's it's. It's everybody you know, but they're they've taken on different positions within the, the ensemble, right? So you definitely have Angel. Um, you know, Cordy is there, uh, Gunn is there, um, Wesley, of course. I had to have Wesley in there and Fred. Um, but then I, I also really wanted to do some stuff with Lauren. So Lauren is in there, but I think um we have a pretty fun take on Lauren that is a that is a little different. Um and and maybe even moodier than than the Lauren we might remember from the show. Um, he's like, he's played a little younger, the way Daniel has drawn him is pretty cool. Like he's just kind of a really interesting and removed character. He's still Lorne. I think we're obviously we want to be true to that character. Um, Andrew shows up, um, Andrew's in there. Um, there, there may be, uh, a little bit of Lindsay, you know, that shows up. Um, you know, there's, there's some pulls in there that are that are fun. And, and obviously Spike, Spike is, Spike is definitely a part of that. And, and some of, some of the, the characters in Spike's orbit uh, will show up as well. So, um, but I'm also just having, I'm having fun, like creating, there's an overarching kind of story over the eight issues. And, but then, you know, with each little four issue arc, there are kind of the, the smaller big bads, you know, the kind of smaller villains that, that I think, you know, readers will have fun, you know, learning about and watching the team come up against and, and stuff. Yeah. It should be cool. So uh, because this is set uh, in Hollywood, is this where you get to vent uh, or, or fictionalize uh, some of your experiences from the, the TV and film sides of your life? 
Well, it's funny because, I mean, I don't, I'm not trying, I don't have like a giant ax to grind. I'm not going to be like, I'm going to use Angel to stick it to, you know, television. But, you know, it can be there. And I think what's, what's fun about Angel is that that show in its structure, I think, lends so much to the detective shows that came before it. Um, and one that comes to mind a lot is The Rockford Files. I think that Angel is very much like an heir apparent to The Rockford Files in a lot of ways, you know, down to like Jim never gets paid. <laughs> he always gets stiffed on the bill, um, you know, and I think that, so, you know, I just took that a step further and that like in this universe that we find Angel in is that he has, he has kind of been sucked into Cordy's Hollywood orbit. You know, we know that from the original show and in the, the characters as we're familiar with them that, 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 Cordy has this acting career that she's always pursuing in our, in, in this version of the story, she's been wildly successful and she's been so successful that, that she's looking for the next thing. And she's, she's kind of brought Angel along with her. And then wouldn't you know it, like Angel's star power has exploded, you know, without him even trying or realizing it. Right. Which is kind of the, the wonderful thing that that character is capable of um, is ending up on top without even trying. Um, and so he finds himself in a very, he, he is in a television show where he plays a vampire, uh, but people don't know he is a real vampire. And it, it's called Angel for Hire. <laughs> and uh, Cordy plays, uh, she, she plays the police uh, detective who's like always on his case. Like it's like the two of them, you know, she's the cop and he's the detective that doesn't follow the rules. And her name is Kate Loxley in the, in the her name is Kate Loxley in the, in the show, right? So there's like little Easter eggs like that. Right. And, and what you find is you've got an angel who is you, the character's always been about duality and being divided between worlds. This is just a, a, a play on that, right. Where he's, he's already divided and now he's, now he's got one foot in something he never thought he'd have a foot in, you know, and he has his detective, you know, business over here, like his, his responsibilities and duties as a champion to save the world, right. Is on, on this, on this side. And then over here, he's, he's, you know, worried about giving Cordy a producer credit, you know, like it's, it's stuff like that. So, so yeah, you know, and some of the, some of the stuff I've been through, like it, it allowed me to like make it feel realistic and make it feel lived in and, and not too goofy, but you know, a lot of it is focused on, on the gang, you know, and, and behind the scenes, you know, but, but it, the Hollywood stuff is there to have, have fun with. And I also thought like that what was interesting about Angel is, it's set in LA and I thought they explored so much of the city in ways that I think even other shows set here don't, but they never really dug deep in into that. And I thought it was like such an interesting, especially with the supernatural element and some of the older elements of Hollywood, there's, there's some cool stuff to explore there. So, you know, there's like old movie theaters and old sets and like, you know, stuff that speaks to like the universal monsters and things like this that I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful it'll be, it'll be fun for people to check out. Yeah. Very cool. Um, one last thing I want to touch on real quick, uh, something else you have coming out, uh, third volume of She Could Fly, uh, your, uh, Dark Horse series with, uh, Martin Morazzo, uh, which, you know, was, was kind of your, your, your breakthrough or your first project, uh, in comics, uh, you know, when you were writing that series to, to start and working with Karen Berger and everything, you know, were, were you thinking to myself, you know, this is my end to this world, you know, were you, were you looking ahead to like, uh, you know, I, I want to write for Marvel or was it more of a, you know, let me, let me see if I can hack it here. You know, let me, let me, let me just play and have some fun. 
I think it was more the, the latter for sure. I, I had one specific idea, which is what she, she could fly became. Mm-hmm. And it was an idea that I'd had for 15 years at that point that I'd had back in college. And I was looking for a way to tell it. And I was revisiting some of my old ideas and I just realized it wasn't, it didn't translate quite right to TV and film. And, and I was just kind of mired in TV and film. I was looking for a different way to express myself, you know, as a writer. And, um, I, I was able to get in touch with Karen um, and 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 picture this book, and she was help, she was really instrumental in helping me refine the the story into what it became, right? Which was and it, then it was really was able to access the the comic book medium with you know the main character of Luna and the things that she is preoccupied with and the thoughts that she has that are recursive and how they repeat and do things like that in the book, and and you know for. for when I was working on that book, it was really just about that book, you know, and, and, and then when I finished that book, you know, Karen, we had such a good time. She was like, if you want to do something else. And, and then from there, we were able to do, you know, the book I did with, with INJ Colbert, everything, which was a lot of fun. And, and then, you know, I, I had done enough stuff and I did, so I did, I did the mask with Mike Richardson. Cause you know, we were at dark horse at the time and that was fun. And I, you know, I guess Marvel noticed like Will Moss who knew Karen, you know, reached out because he needed someone to do a 10 page story for ancillary characters and what they were up to during the war of the realms, all the stuff that Jason Aaron was building out. And so um, he was like, you, you want to do this? And I was like, yes. I didn't even know who the character was yet. I was like, you know, I told you the comics that I read when I first started reading. I mean, like I was, it was, it was a crazy dream come true. And he came back a few days later and he was like, it's Dr. Doom. And I was like, Oh my God. You know I mean? It was so, I was so excited. And, and then from there, you know, I did that. I put everything I had into those 10 pages. I mean, I read every single Dr. Doom, everything. I mean, from, you know, the Kirby stuff and Stanley stuff in the early 60s. I mean, through Brubaker, you know, I, I went I went all the way through. I, I, I went as deep as I possibly could. And um, it was also Sean Tormey, the artist. That was his first Marvel work, too. Um, and he's actually now on Darkhold, which is great. I love seeing him draw Doom again because um, I know he loves Doom. But uh yeah. And then, you know, Tom, Tom Brevoort, you know, at that point, he was like, we're thinking of doing a Dr. Doom book kind of in the vein of what, you know, um, Kieran did with Darth Vader. You know, what do you, what do you, what do you think? You know, would you like to pitch on this? We're going out to a few people. And, and I, I, I killed myself putting that book together. I mean, I just, I wanted that job so bad. I don't know. I mean, like it was, I, I was so over the moon when I got it and, you know, it was, it, I loved writing that book and working with Salva and, and working with that whole team. And lo- I love working with Tom um, and the assistant editors there. And I, I didn't know what it was going to be like. I thought they might be like really hardcore and, you know, kind of like the MCU folks and like very controlling, but the comics group is really like, if it's a good story, go for it, you know? And, and they, they, they oversee that and, and they check in with the other offices, but it's like, kind of just do your thing. And, and the fact that I was able to do what I wanted to do with Doom and then with, with Iron Man has been, has been awesome, you know, and, and uh, I love working with those guys. I, I, uh, I, I, I always would love to have a book with Marvel just because it's been, it's been so much fun, you know, and, and Iron Man's still going and, and um, I've got, I've got another thing that's down the pipeline that, that I'm excited for and, and that'll be announced at some point, probably next year. And, We'll just keep going. It's I love writing comics just in general. It's been every company I've worked with has been has been really, really wonderful. And the feedback loop is small and, and no one no one has like a bunch of pretense about them and and everyone's in it because they love it, because you kind of have to be. 
Um, no one's out to become like a billionaire in comics overnight, uh, at least not anymore. And so um, there's just a sincerity that I really love in the medium and I, I really appreciate it. It's good, it keeps me sane. Well, uh, that's, that's fantastic. And we look forward to your, your upcoming uh, projects. Uh, Christopher, final question, uh, as we let you go, uh, how can people follow you online and keep up with, with Iron Man and Chicken Fly and Angel and Oswald's body and everything else you got going on? Oh, geez. Uh, yeah, I'm on Twitter. That's my big thing. So I'm on Twitter. I'm at if you at if you can't well. Uh, and that's my Twitter handle. And I post my updates and stuff uh, there. Iron Man's out monthly. I think 14 is out because of this paper delay. Uh, I think we're out like the 24th or something like that. Uh, maybe the week of Thanksgiving is number 14. And, um, you know, that'll that'll keep rolling. So, you know, there's Updates to come. Um, I'm always posted on there. Either you know, check this book out or some stupid gif or something like that. That's what I do in my spare time. <laughs> All right, Christopher, thank you so much for coming on the show. Awesome, thank you guys. I really appreciate it. Thank you. That's it for this week's show. As a reminder, WMQ&A is part of Comics XF, where you can find this podcast along with our sister podcasts, Battle of the Atom, Chris's on Infinite Earths, and the new Bat Chat with Matt and Will co-hosted by our own Matt Lazowitz and our bud Will Nevin. You can listen to WMQ&A on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Amazon Music, Audible, and at ComicsXF.com, where new episodes move Tuesday mornings. You can support WMQ&A at Patreon.com slash WMQComics, where a dollar donation gets you early access to episodes, shoutouts on the podcast, and a customized bonus reading column written by Matt Lazowitz, built around the character, creator, or theme of your choice. A $2 donation gets you a free random comic in the mail for my collection. A $3 donation gets you a slot in the ComicsXF staff picks. And a $50 donation lets you advertise on the show. Big thanks to our patrons, Charlie Davis from the Match Club podcast, Robert Secundus from Toxman at ComicsXF, Carla Pacheco from Marvel's Spider-Woman series, Cap Purcell from ComicsXF, and Asimov Fangirl, a.k.a. the Loyalist Content Consumer. You can follow WMQ&A on Twitter at WMQComics, me at Daniel P. Grote, Matt Lazowitz at MattLaz1013, and ComicsXF at ComicsXF. And until next week, remember, when there was one set of footprints in the sand, that's when the Hulk carried you. W-N-Q-A.